Yo, GM, 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 welcome back to the Levers podcast. We got a spicy episode for you guys today. Um, to all of our family and friends listeners, previous listeners of the podcast will get that inside joke. If you've ever wanted to be a part, be a consistent listener. We've got, we're going to be talking about real yield in crypto. We're going to be talking about some strange concept called synthetic liquidity dragging or something like that. And then we're going to be talking about um, a little bit. Well, if we get, if we have enough time, we're also going to be talking about NFTs um, and kind of how um, they're being introduced into the mainstream um, and real world with a lot of corporate partnerships. So a few different topics. I think uh, you got all of your normal guests. We got Shake, Tej, Chris, myself. Um, let's just it off. And so first topic we're going to be talking about is this idea of yield crypto. And um, I'm going to let TJ kind of talk about like kind of the taxonomy of real yield and what it actually or yield and like what the different types of yield are. But just to give a little bit of context for why we're talking about it is I think right now um, with the market down so much, we're seeing a lot of like these DeFi 2.0 and like yield farm Ponzi-nomics protocols have just really collapsed because their token prices aren't really worth anything. And so it's not worth it to farm the yield. But it seems like there's kind of a new narrative emerging over the past few months about this idea of real yield. And we can debate whether or not real yield is really the best name for it. It actually, the more we talked about it earlier, it doesn't seem like the best name for it. But the idea is, is that you start earning rewards for being liquidity providers in these various protocols or participating in these protocols, not just in the protocol's native token, which, as we've seen time and again, is usually a losing bed and someone's left holding the bag, but in, um, you know, assets that are still volatile, but maybe a little bit more stable, like Ethereum, Wrap Bitcoin, um, USDC. And so, um, TJ, why don't you just kind of kick it off? Give us a, give us a little rundown of, of how you think about yield. Um, <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> look, I think the first sort of dimension to, uh, talk about is sustainable versus unsustainable yield. And these are all spectrums, right? So um, when we say unsustainable, it doesn't mean it doesn't work at all. And we, when we say sustainable, we don't mean it's perfect and it's a great yield system. But when you think about um, currently in DeFi where yield comes from, the first version is you inject liquidity into a protocol and you're rewarded with some yield. A lot of that yield basically comes from that protocol, basically pulling equity from the future and minting it today and giving it to you, right? So this is, you can sort of think about this as bribing users to come and do things, right? And when you bribe users to come and do things and you pay them in the native token, that's fine. But you got to recognize that a lot of these native tokens are very volatile. So if numbers are going up and life is good and you're injecting liquidity in this protocol and this protocol and this protocol, and you're receiving all this native equity in kind and numbers are going up and you're selling that equity, it's great, right? This is sort of sustainable in a way, but it's only sustainable in a bull market. So in general, in a flat market or even a down market, we would regard this as fairly unsustainable. On the other side, you have like a money market, something like Aave, right? And what Aave does, is it basically allows um, people to supply assets to others that are willing to borrow them, right? And the rate at which that borrowing or that lending happens um, is fluctuated as per the supply and demand of the market at the time, right? And so that is, you're just being paid for lending your assets out. Are there some Aave liquidity rewards, i.e. some of this sort of first modality of unsustainable yield? Sure. 
But for the most part, that yield comes from demand to borrow that asset. So we have unsustainable in the first case and then relatively sustainable in the second case. Um, we'll go into the nuances after, but um, within the sustainable category, we also have these uh, sort of another dimension that we should um, we should divide along, which is kind of this idea of um, of productive yield versus speculative yield. So when you think about where most of the yield comes from in DeFi, um, it comes from people borrowing. And when people borrow, typically what they borrow for is so they can speculate, right? So they're borrowing to go gamble. And that where, that's where the demand for these assets comes from, which is where the yield comes from. When you think about what gambling is or even what investing is, right? When you write a call option to someone, right? Someone wins and someone loses, right? It's zero. No new value is created. So when you're lending against speculation, you have a zero sum game and no new value is created. When no new value is created, we can define that as non-productive or speculative. On the other hand, if you think about what a business is, right? Um, if the three lads who joined me on this podcast invested some money into a factory, right? And that factory made widgets and it made widgets quickly and people were willing to buy those widgets. What that factory has done is it's created wealth, right? It has a system, it has technology that drives productivity that creates wealth. That is productive yield, right? And so the question today that we're going to get into a little bit is within crypto, is there productive yield? And if so, you know, especially on the RWA side, are RWA is the only version? And how can we get to a spot where there may be a productive yield? Thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, Chris. I think we have to build a levers widget factory and just <laughs> ship levers, little levers to our to our listeners get levers. out there. We get levers. It'll be like our tungsten cube that would pop off. Yeah. I mean, I think what we gotta do, we gotta deposit all our crypto, take a loan out against it, and then build a factory. So that we a lever factory, so that we can be the uh, change we want to see in the world. <laughs> so Dude, that that's kind of so like the thing that I was telling you guys about. Aggressively productive. Is my mic lagging? Shake again? your. Yeah, you're doing the lagged video and uh, audio again. Um, how, does, how does this man stream 24 <laughs> hours a day? <laughs> Still have uh, lagging camera. He's like he's like an elite. He's an elite streamer. <laughs> Yeah, he's too good for this to be happening to him. Anyway, right, so, what were you saying? Yeah, so all right, so TJ, what were the two? So the two categories were productive and non-productive yield, and non-productive yield, right? And then within yeah. that, sorry, yeah, yeah, I was just gonna say, yeah, I mean, productive and non-productive is fine. I think just to give like a little bit of color because you can always just you know use omission to describe something, but what I prefer is productive versus speculative. Oh yeah, productive versus speculative, and so right now. Right now in crypto, we've met, they've, we're not we, but you know, uh, most of DeFi is driven by speculative yield, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, for some of it, I will say like you can use this to do, to like uh, generate productivity, right? Like you could deposit your collateral, take out a loan, and then use that money to, um, like not just to speculate on investments, but to go use it in the real world. It just takes a while to off ramp it. So, for example, when I was unemployed after I left Amazon, I basically just borrowed against some of my crypto collateral and used that to like keep working. So in that sense, it was like enabling and it was very easy to do. So it was enabling me to keep uh, working. Um, and I, so I guess this kind of ties into what I was thinking about with respect to how do we get like more Wait, productive. Let me, let me, yeah, go ahead. I, 
quick because I think it's like a little bit different. Like I, I hear your point, right? You put up some ETH or some BTC, you borrowed against it, you got some stables, and then you use those stables for something productive for you in the real world. But the point is like the lender doesn't give a shit about what you're doing there, right? So they're not underwriting your use of the proceeds as part of their credit risk analysis. Oh, interesting. But at the same time, like the way DeFi is set up, like it's not so you're saying like you would need to have a protocol that said like the yield that you're earning is from people going to do productive stuff in the real world rather than just gambling. Well, yeah. So like when, when you think about how a lender, um, you know, approaches borrowing or, or how a lender approaches underwriting a loan, right? Like they can either. So the way it works in crypto now is like to kind of Chris's point, like you can pledge BTC or ETH and like get a loan immediately, right? And so all the lender really cares about in this over collateralized crypto loan market is what is your collateral? The lender doesn't care who you are or what you're doing at all, right? What I'm saying is typically in the real world, when you know lenders choose to originate loans, um, in many cases, they will consider the activity that that loan is being used to enable as part of the credit risk analysis. In other words, like if I'm lending against a factory, right? I want to know that factor, factory has certain properties that allow it to create a certain amount of widgets. I want to know like what the liquidity position of that owner is. I want to know how like they're, are, they're able to service their debt. And then if their factory works, right? And the process that they've pitched me as a lender is in fact effective and productive, it makes them more likely to be able to pay down the loan, I guess. So there's like a little bit of a, of a difference there. Yeah, and okay. that's and that's how you go from over collateralized, where you don't care what they're using it for, to under collateralized. Um, and if you're a three AC, then like you can be like completely have no collateral, and <laughs> and you don't have oh. to worry about posting any anything. It actually it actually gets better, right? Like uh, part of their book was unsecured. The other part of the book it was secured, but it was secured. The same collateral was just secured by the whole like everybody. <laughs> you know the, the Archegos guy. You guys know Archegos? No. Archegos was a big hedge fund. I don't know. They raised whatever billions of dollars and they did the same scheme, right? Basically, they took the same uh, slug of collateral, whatever it was, maybe some equities or some crypto they were holding, and they pledged it against multiple loans to multiple lenders, right? And it's just like, it's the oldest trick in the book. And like, you got to wonder why the lenders are to each other, but, but, but it does happen. Because people want that money. Um all right. So, all right. So given what we just kind of broke down right now, right? So let, let's like, maybe let's try and think in terms of like where different DeFi projects stand. Like, so where in the current crypto ecosystem can you generate real yield? Like Chris, you just gave like a good example. Obviously there's some nuances to it of like in on Aave and on like, you know, these borrow lend protocols on Maker like there is situations where you can generate real yield if you just might not know that when you're actually underwriting the loan because you're just depositing your crypto into like some vault and just assuming that people are going to take it out and either gamble or do real yield you don't really care about it are there any current protocols where there is like a where like that is the specific purpose mm -hmm. i mean yeah so but there's borrow lend protocols like we brought up uh there's um, exchanges where you LP. So you basically put up your tokens and then you earn fees. Um, if the whatever you're LPing for is smart enough, then you'll make more money than you lose. Um, you can stake into insurance funds and basically provide uh, security for the protocol and get fees. 
basically like anywhere where you stake something like you put up you risk some of your tokens and in exchange for some reward and that reward isn't basically the protocols like token um that they're not like paying for the subsidy using their own token like it's probably a form of like sustainable yield especially if it's in like the protocol design right where it's like like when you do this thing you're guaranteed this reward and it's like baked in and then there's usually someone on the other side that's paying you right so like for uniswap you're getting the fees from someone else trading and taking over like whatever you're LPing. So I think if you see it where there's like, yeah, two people, there's two different types of users and they're paying each other. That's probably um, a, a signal that it's uh, sustainable yield. Is my mic still lagging? No, you're good. No, no, no you're good. <laughs> Thank God, dude. Okay. So um, <laughs> I like what TJ said. Like there, if there's no new value created. It's like, let's categorize it as speculative. If there's like some type of wealth, created and there's like productive assets that means that it's um real yield my question about that is like because basically what what chris is describing a lot of times is just like transfer of risk like the speculation is like oh i'm going to lever up so you know give me more risk basically right like i want to take more risk and this guy is willing to like give me that risk like more or less right but so the so risk we're, we're kind of saying that like if you're just transferring risk that's speculative and that's not like falling into like the real world yields or am I mistaking that? Yeah, I think that that's kind of fair. Um, but like in a sense, all of capital markets are just a transfer of risk, right? I think the like that that's kind of the point, right? Like if you're an entrepreneur, for example, right? The reason you sell equity is to de-risk, right? You sell equity away, right? For some of the upside, but you get cash today, which gives you a longer runway. It allows you to survive for longer, right? Even debt is just a different type of risk exchange. But I think the difference here, um, and just let me know if this is not clear. It may not be clear in my head, but to me, the difference between productive yield and unproductive yield more so has to do with what is happening with the proceeds for the borrower. Is the borrower reinvesting the proceeds in a process that creates wealth? Is the borrower do is the borrower basically does the borrower have technology that solves a problem, right? Or is the borrower taking the proceeds and investing in some sort of process that is zero sum and creates no new net value? To me, those things are different. In the latter case, as a lender, if the borrower is using the proceeds for something that's productive and creates something as a lender, you should be all else equal, more comfortable. Yes, that makes sense. So, okay. But then what about this concept? What about this idea though, which is like what, what a lot of these like real yield protocols are now doing is what they're saying is, listen, what you're going to earn your yield from is from people doing like margin and like leverage trading. Right. And if you look historically at margin 11 trading, like the house always wins. So you can feel comfortable that over the long term, you're going to come out on top versus the traders on the market. So that's still zero sum, right? That would fall into your zero sum thinking. But I still feel like as a lender, you can feel pretty comfortable. Yeah, you, you can definitely feel comfortable with those sources of yield, especially if you trust the protocol and the I guess the risk engine of the protocol. I think Tej is just getting at the fact that there's basically on these systems you have over collateralized. You generally have like over collateralized uh, 
loans and it's only for speculation. And he thinks there's like a huge opportunity in the future where you're using like you have under collateralized loans that are like spurring like more economic activity besides just like betting on which way like Bitcoin or solar are going to go. And even though like you can still make money, like lent, like, you know, getting yield in these DeFi protocols, he's just excited about that future. <laughs> so teach. I am the, this, this uh, project. They're not on mainnet yet, but they asked me to help them with marketing and they were like, Oh, you know, we want to pay you in our fucking token. So I was like, Oh dude, probably not. But then he, he like pitched it to me anyways. Right. And it was basically, it's basically what I was texting about. It's like a credit market, I guess. So there's like you you are buying bonds from people who are trying to do some type of venture, whether it could be trading or it could be me saying, let me make a fucking clothing company. I need 100K to make a clothing company and like 30% yield, right? Is that like what category does that fall into? Because some, I guess it's it could be a productive venture, right? So that's like more like real world yield. I mean, see, this is where things get messy, right? So, like, what you described basically is yield farming, but for, like, real-world initiatives, right? So, you know, let's use a clothing company. Clothing companies raise 100K, you know, to go reinvest in merch, to get their first slug of inventory so they can go hit the streets. And they basically sell, I mean, whether it's, like, a SAF note or actual tokens, I guess they have a token. They give you tokens today, right? And in exchange, you give them cash, right? And so, no, 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 no. Like you don't. There's no tokens, right? So basically, it would be they they're collaborating with something that you verify your identity, you verify your Twitter account, you can even put your like driver's license, you can even put some collateral. So like I might go, hey, I'm putting 30k USDC as collateral. I'm trying to raise 100k to like do this business, and then trust me like like hey i'm a twitter i have a background i have a reputation like you can verify that and just trust me like like if you believe in me i'm going to pay you back and i'm going to give you like a fat yield because this is going to be you know we're going to have 50 percent profit margins right and i'm going to be able to pay you guys back 25 percent got it uh apr so there's and there's no token so it's literally like a bond they, like, so, they so, would literally so, get like a shake merch bond so in 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 it uh, in effect, right? Like right out of the gate, you're not being paid yield, right? Like you're not, you don't have a coupon right out of the gate because they have no money to pay you. Right. But at some point in the future, right. That, that bond principle will be paid down. So what you have here basically is you have an on-chain zero coupon bond. What that basically means is people sell zero coupon bonds in the real world. It means there's no current interest being paid. So on a monthly basis, you're not getting anything, but you basically acquire this bond at a discount to face value such that when the bond expires, when it gets to maturity, right, you get back the face value of the bond. Exactly. And that difference between like, you know, 91 cents on the dollar and at the end of the term, 100 cents on the do dollar, that's your effective yield. So you can back into a yield. But I think what's kind of interesting about this is um, what you're describing is a model that's different than really expensive equity for startups, right? Which is, I think, like a space that's really going to explode over the next few years. Like in... In SaaS and e-com land, like we have revenue-backed finance, right? That's a version that allows founders to not sell expensive equity. Like Porter Finance and Ondo, which are both on-chain, what they were basically trying to do is say, like, how do we enable these DAOs, these few DAOs, but there are DAOs that generate revenue to not sell expensive equity, right? And instead finance themselves through bonds. Um, and the third thing here is what you're basically getting at with this um, 
sort of like proof of humanity, this identification angle, like linking in the discord, like trying to generate like a reputational aspect. Like this is like, this is kind of what like Chris was saying that I was excited about. And I am like right now over collateralized lending is it works really well. It's a simple product, but there's so much like untrodden ground. And the reason for that is right now, if you think about like going to maker, like maker doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care what you've done on chain. It doesn't care about your credit worthiness. It doesn't care about anything like that. All it cares is if you have eligible collateral, right? But like what happens as we start to move forward on chain with using someone's behavior, someone's identity, someone's reputation to color in the picture of their credit worthiness in a more dynamic way, right? That's when like you can do interesting things like over collateralization ratios don't have to be as high, right? If you have a fantastic reputation on chain, like maybe like a lot of these Twitter influencers do, like you may be able to borrow at a really awesome rate and then go reinvest into a productive activity like creating a clothing brand. But then again, right? Like I think your your example, it 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 kind of screws up my taxonomy a little bit, right? Because like who's to say that if you're I don't know that's obviously productive, but then at the same time, if you're getting like uni LP tokens for LPing in uni, who's to say that like Uniswap as a brand and as a company that creates value for people doesn't also grow? So I think it gets messy, but there's a lot of interesting things there. Yeah, I mean, to me, Uniswap, well, you see, the thing is like their business is speculation, right? They make trading right. fees based on people speculating. So that's why, it, that, but yeah, I mean, there's but, definitely but a also, gray area. But also like, yeah, What's the difference between like speculating on tokens and any like exchange, like any marketplace? I guess if you consume yeah. the if you consume the thing, it's acceptable. But if the thing is like a speculative vehicle, it's speculative. Like it just gets blurry, you know? Right, right. Because even you could say like venture is speculative. <laughs> like I'm gonna risk my time and capital because I think I can make this business work. I mean, that's like kind of like right. There's yeah. like I don't know. Maybe I'm getting if you, too abstract. If you start a factory, isn't that speculating? <laughs> yeah, maybe all, saying, all, all of like, life oh, I think all of life is a gamble that's what i'm really saying bro <laughs> it's like, all ponzi dude it's all I, think, ponzi. I think the i think the only difference is like well i and i agree to an extent but like isn't the point that speculating is like there's no fundamentals you know it's like pure risk taking whereas like if you open a factory there's like certain things you can do to like try and compare how profitable that factory might might be based on you know either wealth it's generating or comparables with existing factories that are similar and stuff like that yeah speculation isn't here doesn't mean like there's risk it means that the risk that you're taking is to like increase wealth and productive capacity i think is what teach was actually getting at but i like the uh life's a gamble meme so that that does draw the line right it's like the wealth creation and like Tech, like you do you have technology like exactly right exactly like, like typically, betting typically, on meme coins isn't i mean yeah it's not really technology it's not making people's lives better really <laughs> like because you could also yeah. be like oh it's entertainment like gambling exactly. entertainment it's called it's it's but, cultural yeah. cultural value it's cultural wealth creation but like i, I do think that's that's a, like a meme way to put it too right when you think about a source of yield that's productive like there should be a technology at play and a technology doesn't mean like tech as in like the sector we consider tech right like language is a technology law is a technology like securitization was a technology like a lot of things are technologies right because they take a chaotic state and they turn it into a more ordered state right it's it's productive that's what technology is so like so we were i think this is actually interesting because it it's kind of get like so let's look at if can we look at ethereum real quick right and talking about like staking eth 
So like what we were trying messaging about earlier is like, does Ethereum staking Ethereum count as like getting access to real yield, right? Because like from my, what I'm thinking is right. When you're staking your Ethereum, you're securing the network, right? So that's like, you're, you're doing something that has value if there are valuable things being done on Ethereum. So from my perspective, it, it, it is like an example of a non-zero sum productive way to get yield. Yeah, it's a great question because what I would have said is I would have looked at an easier comp, which I think is BTC. And I think when you okay. think about BTC mining, BTC mining is zero sum, right? There's only 21 million. So if you're getting one of them, someone else is not getting them. But the question is, and like I think the question that you sort of ask, which is a good one, is just because the monetary side is zero sum, is there no value being created by virtue of security, by virtue of the economy that's built on top and the exchanges that can be built on top? I think there's something there. I haven't thought enough about it to have a compelling view, so I'll leave it to the, to the other lads. I mean, I feel like if you think that eventually DeFi is, say, running on ETH rails and you're doing real-world assets on ETH, then you're kind of compelled to say, like, recursively that ETH, like, staking ETH is productive then. Yeah, um, I would agree. Yeah, I, th I kind of think... Okay, so I... I think it's productive, too. I mean, I think it's... You're securing the network, right? All right, so Even go stake your ETH. What do people everyone. do on the network? Speculate, but you know. No, that, that, that thing, one, I think that's an thing removed. That, that's one layer. <laughs> that's a great way. That is a great way of looking at it, though, right? Like if at t equals zero, if the idea that everything in Ethereum, like we've talked about, is speculative, right? And so securing the network then is not productive because everything built on top of the network zero sum. Like Chris's point is right, right? Like in the future, if the idea is there. They're going to be productive activities on ETH. If you discount back to today, the security that we provide for ETH at T equals zero is productive. Yeah, and and honestly, not, not all of like even though I just I just said all of the stuff is speculative. There actually is some activity that's not speculative, right? Like, didn't Maker just do like a loan to a bank, and then we could talk about NFTs? Like, it's allowing people to like make a living, like connecting with their yeah. fans, and um, what even what Chris well, did, it wasn't really well, speculative. Like he took a loan out against an asset he's bullish on like he took a loan out against hard money to get fiat to fucking pay his bills right like so there is like some real value and we think it's going to keep going in that direction so yeah. eth is productive asset yeah i mean i think it's i think it's been solved i know i just went back i went right back on what i said like i was like oh it's all speculative but it, it's actually <laughs> not it's just fun to like troll like that you know shake your mic is still crushing us it's Jake, your your mic is killing us, but cat is bull cat is bullish on the lads and bullish on ETH. So we're in yeah, nice cat is bullish on ETH. I'm glad to see that. Who is cat, cat is the first female to ever listen to Lever's lot <laughs> Lever yeah. lads, and we're we're forever grateful. Except Thank maybe you. like Shake's mom or something, <laughs> or no, TJ's mom probably listened once. But I don't think my mom ever listened. <laughs> yeah, my mom and my sister listened once, and they were just like, I don't think I've ever listened to something for an hour and had no idea what was going on. <laughs> Uh, Kat showed me right, your uh, Bitcoin notes, and they were good. It's good, so, but I think it's like it's not like it starts bad. It just is good, and it's bad, and it's good, and it's bad. It might be because you're muting or something. I don't know. Um, um, wait, hold on. I think uh, I think Shake brings up something something sort of interesting here, right? So 
if we think about what's productive, like obviously if you're bringing RWAs on chain, that's productive. I don't think anyone debates that, at least in most cases. But my gut says that there are like things in NFTs also that can be defined as productive, right? You lend to an artist, for example. Like imagine an artist sells uh, 200 NFTs, right? And those NFTs are effectively rev shares, right? So that artist sells those 200 NFTs. She raises, you know, $40,000 that allows her to rent out a studio, create a song, right? And then of the, let's say, the audience revenue she generates in the future, 15% of that is sluiced to the NFT holders, right? So right there, what you've done is you've lended against a productive activity. Now, is it productive because it's like solving a problem, an economic, economic problem? No, but it's solving a problem because people like to listen to music, right? It makes them happier. Right. So it's it's ultimately no different. People are willing to pay for that product. And it's the lenders who unlocked, who basically took the risk transfer that unlocked the artist's ability to create that music. Right. So I feel like NFTs should sort of fit into this taxonomy as well of productivity. Dude, honestly, so so this this protocol that that pitched me or whatever, like that, I hadn't even thought of that, but you could almost like specifically with music. Can you imagine like it's almost like because they're not getting royalty share, but it's just a, one of these, what do you call it, Z coupon, zero coupon, um, zero coupon bonds. So they're not getting royalty share, but they are potentially getting yield. And it, it's almost like you can make a decentralized record label on chain for an artist. Like, hey, bro, we want you to quit your job. We're going to give you 100K. Go make music for a year and let's fucking see what happens, right? And like, he has a bunch of fans, so he lets that happen, <clears throat> and he doesn't have to sign a record deal. He just signs a fucking MetaMask, bro. Now we're talking. That gets me excited. <laughs> I do wonder, I think uh, he's just pushing like the real world assets, like kind of more traditional finance happening on chain. But I wonder if the more like productive type lending that we think about uh, happens through like NFTs and metaverse um, before it happens in like, traditional finance doing under collateralized loans on chain um and yeah what do you so what do you so what do you mean by that that happens uh, you, you mean sort of there's a digital economy like a virginal digital economy that gets to the stage of maturity where there's like plenty of productive activities to lend on in cyberspace before like fully like the off-chain world tries to come on chain to get to get loans yeah i guess just like shake was saying you give someone some amount of money, like a hundred thousand dollars, and then uh, they then like it's written into the smart contract that they'll pay you back up to a million dollars in NFT fees. So that's like under collateralized loan of sorts or like whatever equity bet, and that's all happening because it's all like native to the chain, and so um, it's more likely to happen than someone like I don't know using a blockchain to give out a loan to actually go build a factory or something. Um, yeah. I mean, it's certainly to, I think what's, what's great about the point, I mean, I would describe like the future of RWAs on chain as being two pronged. One prong is rebirth and the other is birth. So when you think about rebirth, it's taking existing assets and re-ledgering them on chain, right? Which is hard. Um, but the other side, which is birth is like, how do we create with the tools at our disposal, completely new assets, right? And one of the ways to complete a to, to create a completely new asset is if it's already inherently digital, right? Like you're not dealing with all these path dependencies of ripping something out of the real world. It already lives in like a municipal ledger. Like if you can create these assets like NFTs or like gaming assets or like music and royalty related assets, 
it's much easier to lend against that productive activity than like, yeah, like lending, you know, for MakerDAO to lend against, you know, like a, you know, a Taiwanese energy infrastructure project. Yeah. Although I'd love to do that. Stand with Taiwan. I stand okay, with Taiwan. I have, I have a question for you about the RWAs. So a lot of the benefit of blockchain is like reducing the cost that's collected by intermediaries. Um, and one of the nice things about over collateralized loans is it's all programmatic and it's very cheap to get a loan. And then when you talk about our RWAs coming back and like there being people to assess uh, credit risk and basically use that to understand how much loans to give out, et cetera. Doesn't that mean you're reintroducing middlemen and you would expect costs to go back up? And then where, why is it more valuable to do that on the blockchain? So what I would say is at the beginning, yes, it's going to be more expensive, um, which makes incentivizing people to come on chain very, very difficult. Um, but so right out of the gate, basically the only reason someone would come on chain is a, if it's cheaper, so if you're a sovereign issue of currency, which Maker has an advantage in, or B, they're taking some sort of a longer strategic bet on the underlying technology. They want to associate a brand with crypto. They think, you know, somehow getting, getting in the game today will earn them a seat at the table of innovation of the future, blah, blah, blah. Ultimately, what we're going to get to is there's going to be enough assets on chain. We're going to be re-ledgering enough assets, rebirth assets on chain that you're going to have these basic administrative problems that riddle real world credit markets kind of be abstracted away by code, right? So if you think about what's happening in securitization, so this is the easiest, maybe not the easiest, but it's a good comparison, right? Think about what happened in the 1990s with securitization markets. Securitization was complicated, but it was just a new standard. And it basically said, if you can create, if you can get your asset in this little box, right? Originate assets in this little box, we can give you a guarantee that we're going to take those assets, we're going to package them up, and then we're going to sell them off to investors as per their needs, right? And that unlocked a lot of credit market activity, and that solved problems for both people that owned assets and that people, people who wanted yield. So a basic new standard that unlocked a whole bunch of capital activity. If I fast forward to today, the reason I think we're all trying to tokenize RWAs is to converge on a similar standard, right? A standard of surveilling assets, tracking assets, packaging assets, and distributing assets. Right now, the fact that there's like, I don't know, maybe less than a billion of TVL, of RWAs on chain, there's just not enough critical mass for us to yet see the efficiencies. But I think what we're going to start to see is when all these assets are on chain, you're basically going to be able to automate a whole bunch of the machinery that is um, tackled by traditional media intermediaries in the real world. I think the other more powerful thing is, you know, ultimately... Um, one of the inherent strengths of blockchains is this idea of transparency and immutability, right? And so I think there's like a reputational element here that will also play in as off-chain borrowers, you know, continue to build a reputation for consistent creditworthiness on-chain, and they can point to that reputation also on-chain, they'll be able to access very, very, very cheap credit on-chain in a way that they couldn't in the real world. But to tie all of that out, I think one of the features of innovation is um, uncertainty and confusion are always here, right? So you have all of these people building towards RWAs on chain right now. I don't think anyone has any idea what the North Star looks like, what success looks like. But nevertheless, we're all here and we're all building shit. So I think something of value comes out the other side. 
no matter what way you slice it. I mean, yeah. you could and you you could also see a world like this is very very early, but um, like you know, I, like that presentation I sent you, TJ, where you because of like the transparency and information you get from on chain, like you can start to automate the ability to underwrite loans and things like that. I think that's probably like way way off into the future. But like that sort of technology could, you know, reduce those centralization costs. But I, I think that's a good that's a really good point, Chris. And it's something I think about definitely a lot because, you know, one of the big detractors right now is, yeah, like in order to do some of the more complex like real world asset finance financing stuff, you need to have really sophisticated people who understand to do that. And there's a pretty small supply of those people willing to do that right now. And so as a result, the fees to do that are also pretty high. Yeah, yeah, I guess I I never uh, I guess I didn't get this point before. I think it's a good one that basically a blockchain enables you to come up with a standard that then um, like everyone can conform to, and it adds legibility and transparency. And basically, you already have people trying to do this, where they're trying to make uh, normal credit more legible and like standardize it, but they're just using the legal system, and it's super expensive. And you could see a world like you know, 10 years from now where these, uh, um, this debt that's like securitized, like you could actually see the money being paid in real time and it's standardized and you can exactly. actually compare across, um, a bunch of deals. And it's like the same, like all the issues we have now where you can't understand the complexity, at least it's like on chain. So, um, yeah. and you don't have to pay the ongoing, uh, legal fees to keep it going, which, I guess more broadly is kind of my thesis on DeFi. That was like when we talk about like, you know, there's all these hacks and it's risky. I think eventually once it's like the industry matures and it gets safer, it's basically like you'll have the upfront cost of software development is less than the ongoing cost of having lawyers like secure your finance. Um, and yeah. basically to be bearish on that, you have to be bearish that like the devs aren't going to figure it out. Which honestly is like, I mean, uh, that's a fair take for some people, but like, that's not my worldview. So, so why don't we then transition now from one topic where we discuss how crypto is going to fix everything to another topic called synthetic drag, which I don't think anyone except for maybe Chris has any idea what it is, but TJ, take it away. I'll, I'll let, I'll let Chris take this one given the, uh, Giving the gas up. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll I'll take this one since I'm I'm one of the co-originators of the name, but I've been given no credit. <laughs> My name doesn't even show up in the Wikipedia page for synthetic drag, and it's I got rugged. So this is my time to assert my dominance. Um, <laughs> the idea of the synthetic drag is that you would expect. Uh, so you have uh, like a spot or the real assets price, and you have a derivative price. Um, and the derivative price is supposed to track that the asset. That's why it's called a derivative because it's like based on an asset. Um, and so the intuition is that like, okay, as the assets price moves, the derivative will go towards the asset price. And the idea of synthetic drag is basically that that gets flipped and the real assets price will move towards the derivatives price. Um, once basically the derivative OI or it's, um, or open interest or like the amount of money in the derivative market is greater than the amount of money in the uh, underlying assets market. Um, and so actually, yeah. So we were talking about this, I guess, in context of perps 
I think it also is actually like the reason for like, if you ever heard of Max Payne, um, Max Payne is kind of an application of like synthetic drift where the asset price moves to where the most OI is on the derivatives market. So it's just kind of this idea that like the derivatives market can actually force the asset price to move instead of vice versa. Does that so, make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But so like, do we already see this phenomenon play out in like traditional markets, right? Because like derivatives and like synthetic asset markets are usually bigger than the actual like hard asset, right? Yes. yes. The, 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 the premise is this is not new, but a continuation of a phenomenon we already see. Like, I mean, if you look at the oil futures markets, right, you know, as you get closer to the expiration of derivatives contracts, I mean, this is sort of the Max Payne idea, right? If you have a whole bunch of derivatives contracts that are expiring six months out, as you get closer to the expiration of a whole shitload of, of futures contracts, naturally the spot, a barrel of oil, is going to converge on those futures contracts. Because ultimately, if you get to the end of a contract and you own that futures contract, you're owed delivery of the underlying asset. So yes, this is not a new idea, but I think it does, this idea does sort of explode when crypto does. And the reason for that is because I think as crypto grows, you'll see a financialization of everything, right? As long as you can establish an Oracle, right? Which gives you some sort of underlying indicator, you can create and spin up all of these liquid instruments. So liquidity is just going to explode. Like if you even think about like, this new standard for RWAs on chain, right? Like part of the reason you want RWAs on chain is because you can slice them and dice them into so many different programmatic combinations, right? They can like, you can grab so many investors and blast assets over here, blast assets over here, slice them up. You do all these things right on chain. And so you're going to have so many liquid instruments flying through cyberspace and the, the spot assets just can't compete. They don't move that quickly. Think about a, think about a house, right? A house just sits there. But meanwhile, we've sliced up that house into so many different tokens. We're blasting them all over the internet. They're trading at every second, right? So that house, which gets traded once every five years, its price is going to be dragged by its synthetic representations on chain. So is the, I mean, that's really interesting. So is the idea then also, I want to hear like why Max Payne is called Max Payne. I don't understand that. But the, the, so is the idea right there though that, um, Shoot, I just lost my train of thought. Wait, why is Max Payne called Max Payne? And then I have a question that'll come back to me in a second. Uh, Max Payne converges to the price that like the option holders will lose the most money. Um, Got you. But the reason for that is like the people who are holding the options on the other side is the people who wrote the options. And so they have to deliver the option. <laughs> and so to deliver the option, they start like buying the asset or selling the asset to be like delta neutral or to be hedged. And when they do that, it basically forces the price to move to where there's the most OI. Gotcha. And so it like in the process, basically, the people holding the options lose a lot of money while the people who wrote them are hedging. But it's really I feel like the Max Payne thing has like a mystical sounding name. It's like markets just want to punish you. Um, and it's more, I think, the technical reason for it, if it is actually a fun uh a phenomena is basically it's because like the price moves to where the most OI is in the derivatives market. Because um, so that's what people bring, need. This is why we don't bring Chris to parties. He says that everything mystical is actually mathematical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty good at fucking up uh, <laughs> a good conversation. By oh, no, you're really you're, analytical. You're, 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 you have you have feelings. No, mathematically, you shouldn't feel that way. 
Okay, that that makes sense. And then and then the the question I had then is so is or they just like to kind of like re said what you just said a little simpler for a little simpler is by having it on chain like price discovery and like the efficiency of the market is just so much more than the actual physical asset. So you can price the actual asset a lot better, basically in real time instead of like having to wait for delivery or like sell a house. Yeah, exactly. And and then just uh, capital is like, well, who does this reward? It just rewards traders and speculators and people that know how to, um, you know, deal in these markets. But at the same time, what ultimately helps is also those who own assets that are fundamentally mispriced, right? Fundamentally price and ultimately it doesn't matter what you do with it. It's not going to move the price. You don't have really an incentive to improve that asset. So like think about farmland. Most farmland is completely excluded from capital markets. It's bizarre, right? An acre corn farmland, same fertility of soil in Romania and one in the UK. The one in Romania is like one eighth of the price. And you ask, well, if it's farmland, shouldn't it be valued by its productive potential as opposed to its location? And broadly, that's correct, right? But the farmland in Romania is in 15 years, so no one knows what the value is, right? And so no one's willing to lend against it because no one knows what the value of it is. But if you have this sort of agricultural perp that traded, you know, on a minute-by-minute basis on chain that represented that and its productive potential, like potentially that market, the underlying spot market, would get more efficient, allow entrepreneurs and borrowers to access capital markets in a way they couldn't. So I think as usual, right? be like the tired libertarian the hyper capitalist process is also the financially inclusive one okay interesting and so you're i mean once again you're just making an argument for real world assets classic tj um but you're saying basically like the the value proposition then for um something like maker or any of these real world asset protocols is that you're basically helping like or you're you're just creating a lot more efficient capital markets. Yeah, exactly. We were uh, talking to some people, and they're like, "Okay, the meta in 2020 was DeFi. The meta in 2021 was the Layer One trade. Like, what's going to be the meta for 2022?" And TJ's like, "RWAs." <laughs> and the guy's like, "Really? Is anyone else saying that?" I was like, "No." <laughs> I do. It's a sleepy shelling his bags. <laughs> Everyone's saying it. Everyone's saying it. No, dude, real yield is about to be the meta in 2022. And we've determined what real yield is. Real world assets. So, dude, yes. all five of the MakerDAO delegates are talking about it, okay? Everybody's talking about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> dude, everyone everyone's talking about RWAs. Everyone, everyone knows there's only one MakerDAO delegate. <laughs> um, all right, so I say we're now two for two on... Um, discussing topics and all reaching agreement that we're all should we, right should we so talk about that <laughs> I, I i feel like we didn't really touch, touch on gmx that much right i mean we <laughs> talked about it at a high level i did we i mean we didn't no, really we, right? we, we we just talked about real yield but yeah i mean we, <laughs> we don't want to talk about it we we can quickly touch on. I mean I so we can I think GMX is You're, you love GMX so let's let's show it for our listeners. I just want to show a graphic, bro. I'm tired, you know. That's why <laughs> that's really why I asked. I just like this is a fire nice it up, graphic. fire it up, fire it up. This is a nice little graphic here. Yeah, so well that's we that's umami right there. So that's that's like oh, very interesting. Um no wait, so, this is GMX. 
Well, that's Umami, which uses GMX oh. and then Tracer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so GMX is what? Like a derivatives and spot trading platform, right? Where you can do like leverage trades. And they're like, after the DeFi 2.0 collapse, I think there was like a kind of a real, nobody was really excited about like DeFi 2.0 and yield farming. And I would say like in the past few months, uh, protocols like GMX, although I would actually argue like and what's, Curve. What, can you say what DeFi 2.0 is real quick? If, if people listening don't know. Um, like Olympus I don't DAO was a big one, right? Yeah, like I would say DeFi 2.0 was like very elaborate financial engineering of like how to basically create protocol owned liquidity, which meant like the protocols actually own the liquidity, can do something productive with it. And in return, you get like emissions of their tokens. So most of it turned out to be like pretty elaborate Ponzi-nomics that collapsed when the market collapsed. But um, I think like the one of the big issues with DeFi 2.0 was like the emissions you got was just like the protocol's token. And what is interesting about things like Curve and GMX, um, there's like a bunch of them out there now. Uh, Curve, GMX, like nobody listening to us, by the way, like don't buy any of this stuff. And like we're not shillings at all, like this is just purely interesting in terms of thinking about how yield is generated on crypto, but, um, uh, umami full network. So nervous now he's going to redact it. Aren't contract. you? A, he's like, dude, Lucas, I'm aren't not you a chilling. financial advisor? <laughs> no, aren't you, no, aren't you an RA registered financial I heard, advisor? I heard, I heard Lucas's too, boss is watching funny. closely, dude. He's like, wait, what did he say there? <laughs> but so, all right. So this is what GMX does. What GMX does is it's like a trading protocol, right? It's kind of like DYDX. And, what you can do with GMX is you can provide liquidity. So you give them like Ethereum, Bitcoin, uh, Chainlink, USDC, and they create a liquidity pool with that, that people can like do leverage trading with. And then for providing that liquidity, what you get is you get paid out basically in terms of fees and liquidations and any other sort of like protocol revenue generating mechanisms they have in not just the protocol's native token, but also in like Ethereum or Bitcoin or Chainlink. And so it's kind of, it's a, it's a very different, it's not that different, but it's, it's different from like a lot of the DeFi 2.0 stuff that we saw, because instead of just getting paid out in the emissions of the protocol's native token, you're also getting like tokens that people are probably more comfortable holding like ETH, even though they're also very volatile, they're more comfortable. So GMX does it. I think like Curve, I think, is really successful. Like Curve does it. In Curve, you get paid out in CRV emissions, but you also get paid out in like three pool LP tokens, which can be redeemed for like USDC, DAI. Um, I can't remember what the third token, uh, USDT. So it, it's kind of, I think it's like, I think why it's so attractive right now for people is because we're just finishing like that DeFi 2.0, like, you know, craziness. And like when the bubble burst on that, everyone was like, oh, shit, like all of this stuff is just worthless. It's like whoever is holding the bag at the end gets screwed and you just have to like get in early and leave early. But as soon as people are like, oh, wait, I'm going to get also get paid in USDC or ETH. Like, I think that's a for, for that makes them feel a lot more comfortable about what they're doing. And as a result, like it 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 changes their framework for looking at the actual protocol. And so. I think it's being called like real yield. That's kind of like the um, 
tag that's being given to it right now because your yield is not just in the protocol's native token. It's also in these other tokens that people are much more comfortable holding. Yeah, and, not to be uh, not to be uh, annoying, but this isn't like Uniswap V2 is like the same thing, right? Like you're just LPing and you're getting the trading fees. I think people are just getting excited about this because the GMX token also accrues the fees. So yeah. it's like there's people are already LPing. It's not but like, oh, if I hold the GMX token, I'm, it's I think it'll actually go up in value because it's not like it's not uh, emitting the token supply to like reward users and it's not going to zero. So I think it's a, like maybe the real yield is like a meme to just make people excited about the GMX token because honestly, it's not a new concept um, how, as we talked about, like all the come, DeFi one, DeFi 1.0 protocols have real yield. That's a good point. And how come the how come the yield on like like supplying margin on GMX is so much better than if I were to go on FTX and like lend USDC to leverage traders. Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know for sure, to be honest. I mean, maybe just because it's because like 27% it's like, or something, right? It's like crazy. Maybe oh, it's because be it's all combined, maybe, right? It's like the basket of tokens that might have something to do with it. That you're not, it's like more capital efficient, maybe. Like you're not just lending ETH to the ETH borrowers, you're like lending ETH, Bitcoin, and USDC. I don't yeah, know. and and maybe like fees are just like better because it's disintermediated. Um, oh, well, you get fees, fees and you get borrowing fees, so you get trading fees and borrowing fees, and oh, you're and, FTX, and you're not you picking get, one asset. Yeah. I don't think you're picking one asset. Like you're literally get you're LPing the whole pool. So if there is crazy price movement, it's it makes the impermanent loss probably a little bit worse. Like if you just were to like lend out USDC, like instead you're kind of basically lending out this basket because when you burn your LP token, you get your proportional amount of all the assets back, I think. Um, oh, and, and it's also because you're getting emissions of GMX, right? Like that's the added yield as well. So, oh, I mean, so that's that's the fake yield. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. That so is they're bullish on GMX because of the real yield. But we get also paid that fake yield. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, actually, I mean, that's a really good point about like Uniswap as well. I think I think probably what's exciting for people about this is like Uniswap is and like yeah, and Aave, it's like kind of boring for people because it's not gambling. Right. Whereas with this, like you're basically you're it, you know, the way that I keep seeing it described is like you're basically like get to own part of a casino and the casino always wins. And so that's allows you to have higher yields. Yeah, for for the record, I think GMX is really cool. I'm not. I think uh, they're kind of like basically Uniswap, like the simple in curve, like LPing like that is very simple and honestly doesn't work super well for a lot of things. And so what GMX is doing where you like LP and then they're using an Oracle to like intelligently market make and still give their users um, yield is like really uh, interesting and really cool. Um, and an issue with a lot of like basically the passive LPing is it's just like so like simple that you basically lose money um, if you're not getting liquidity tokens. So I think the cool thing about GMX is they're trying to make it such that the LPs don't get screwed because usually if you're LPing, you lose on impermanent loss, um, which is like another concept. So I think the cool thing about GMX is they're yeah they're uh, protecting their LPs really well. 
Um, I think we have to close out in just a few minutes. Um, uh, the, the, I guess if we just have a few minutes, Chris, what is the Oracle aspect? Why is that so unique? Okay. Um, basically like Uniswap, the price is just based on the curve, like the AMM curve at any time. And then the price in the real world is moving, um, or like on other exchanges is moving and the AMM doesn't actually update its price as prices update other, uh, other places. And so what ends up happening is basically like people can come in and arb the AMM. And when the AMM get arbed, that basically means the LPs are lo like losing money. Um, and so like if you LP into a simple AMM, um, you're probably going to get arbed by someone more sophisticated and you're going to basically incur like impermanent loss. Um, where what's happening with GMX basically is they're using the Oracle price to know what the price of the assets are. And then if the Oracle price moves, they're adjusting their prices. Almost like a market maker would automatically adjust their prices. They wouldn't give you just a stale price because that's like what's on chain. Um, and so basically, I guess the TLDR is the Oracle price allows for the smart contract, like the GMX protocol to provide good prices that protect the LPs. So you're not getting arbitraged out like you're basically because you're not introducing an aspect where people can arbitrage. Yeah, like there's still arbitrage, but um, it's just like it, it it's harder. So what they do is like people submit their trades and then they like see all the trades and then they let the trades go through and it's based on the Oracle price. And so they can basically say like, OK, this isn't you're not the LPs aren't getting like a bad deal here. Um, whereas basically if you're like LPing in a. AMM, you're just like kind of like a sitting duck and you'll get, I don't know if you guys ever heard of toxic flow, but it's when like someone knows where the price is and you don't, and then they just take all your, they just like uh, trade against you and you get stuck holding the bag. And so like GMX is trying to uh, like protect against that, both with the Oracle and they kind of have this like um, delayed trading experience, which we're actually using for uh, Drift V2 as well. So, what, so, so to to follow up on Nas Redden one two hundred five's question, why do we reckon that Chainlink has been so dominant for price feeds when you know there are proprietary price feeds like Uni and GMX, and like do we see as trading increases on these platforms that an Oracle like GMX's becomes valuable as sort of a complementary service to kind of the core offering? Um, GMX uses Chainlink oracles. I saw in the yeah. docs today. There you um, go. So there's how about just for, how about how about for Uni then, or for anyone else? Wait, why you're saying why doesn't Uni use oracles or no? Why does Uni? Why do all of these trading venues? I mean, in a sense, they have a lot of trading that happens in house, right? So mm -hmm. they kind of know if they have enough liquidity, they can sort of back into a proprietary oracle that they could yeah. then sell to other services. So like why well, is Chainlink... Uni V3 does this actually. Like they right. so made what, it so so why is Chainlink 95% market dominant is what I'm asking. Um I think on well for whatever reason a lot of layer 1s they haven't like bake, like a lot of these spot exchanges didn't bake in basically a way to keep track of like a TWAP and an Oracle price. And then like Uni V3 was one of the first ones to do it where they're like, this is like a basically a public good. And if we're doing all the liquidity or we're providing like a shit ton of liquidity, like this could be the Oracle. Um, 
And honestly, I think to really be decentralized, you would want to get rid of the price oracles and you would want enough liquidity on chain to use those um, as like your price feed. And right, exactly. One thing we're thinking about Drift V2 is actually to like, we basically make our Oracle parameterizable. And so we could use um, like Serum, for example. We could store our own Serum TWAP and use that for like what the Oracle is from on-chain behavior. Um, what, what I love this guy, Nasrud, and he's going off on chain link. Um, that sounded more like a- more, bull more bullish than I am. Well, I, <laughs> I feel like Chris's comment right there is kind of bearish on chain link actually, right? Um, I'm not bearish chain link. I just think for us to be like really decentralized, you'd want on chain spot markets to be your Oracle. Um, because it's just, it's just inherently safer. I mean, it, it's not actually inherently safer if there's not enough liquidity. So that's the issue. If there's no liquidity, you can just manipulate it. Um, <laughs> I guess our listeners can't see. We got a, we got Nas red and just says he only holds chain link and always is at work. And diversifying is for I, I, lo for I love this. losers. I love this guy. I love this guy. We need more Marines in the chat. <laughs> Nas, Nas, I'm always trying to pump Link, and all these guys are just so bearish. They're gonna be so poor. No, dude, I uh, love Chainlink. I love Chainlink. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, so what is what is, what is the price first. Oracle for? I mean, what is the Oracle like? Where is it getting its price from for GMX? Do you know? uh i mean no i, I like the it's chain it's whatever chain link is using just, on arbitrum and optimism so it's probably just uh <laughs> i it's probably just coming from like binance ftx etc yeah, exactly. off chain exactly they, they just query all the sexes i think we I need mean, to honestly, get a... this is a big issue with perps in general we're basically using price discovery on centralized exchanges to basically price things on chain and yeah. so it's kind of like we're leeching off centralized exchanges which is why I'm saying like I would rather I want one day that there to be on-chain oracles because then you're not dependent on this off-chain infrastructure. It's kind of like Bruh, synthetic dirty drag, synthetic drag again. Yeah, that's another. Yeah. But but to do that, you need to have most of the volume happening on chain, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like a chicken and the egg problem. Yeah. Um, but I mean, serum is probably big enough where it'd be hard to manipulate but amms are actually very easy to manipulate like you can date like just a property of amm is you can move you can reverse the price so you can move it up and back down in one transaction and really fuck with it and if you can get a flash loan you could literally send a price to a million and then move it back down atomically so they're uh amms are actually less secure because they're more i guess composable in a way um so you would probably need something like uni v3 or Actually, I don't know if Univ3 might have the same problem, but something like Serum that's an order book might be safer for storing uh, Oracle price. Anyway, I'm probably getting into stuff no one wants to care, or hear about, or care about. No one dude, cares. Don't worry. No since one the cares. first minute of the episode, it's been this is my whole point about Link, dude. We need shit that retail is going to ape into. They want the fucking Dogecoin. They want DeFi kingdoms. You know. They don't want fucking Link, bro. I'm so glad I didn't. We need to find that, the next Link though, because Link was like the winner of the of the last bear market. So I want to. Nas said he could Link pick us all. Dude, I've, I've people have. All he's gonna say, he's gonna be like, "Oh, it was in the paper with the Federal Reserve." That's, that's like their bull thing. Yeah. Hey, don't be mean to our listeners. Yeah, we only I'm have like kidding. one of them. I actually think Link is probably good because Lucas and TJ are smarter than me. But I just like to talk shit about TJ with TJ because it's like underperforms everything 
<laughs> I just, Dude, I just, you know like, what it, I just you know like what it, the price. I don't actually fud you know the chain link. You know what it doesn't underperform? Goddamn DeFi kingdoms. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, that's true. That's true. It, it probably it probably outperformed all my NFTs too. Yeah, so I'm down bad. Okay, we're getting into price talk, so we should probably end it here. All right. Um, all right, another great episode of Levers, number 23. Shout out to Nas and Kat for yeah. showing up in the chat. Yeah, yeah, appreciate you guys. Shout out. It's good to yeah. have you on. Go to the uh, Synthetic Drag Wikipedia page and endorse <laughs> TJ and Chris. <laughs> Stay levered, fans. Peace. Peace. <laughs>